The Sanctuary, a community of Jesus people promoting the glory of God in all things to all nations through gospel-centered missional living. Whether it be working with groups in Africa to build orphanages and help rid the continent of AIDS, or feeding the hungry, giving to the oppressed, and helping the hurting who live in our own community, The Sanctuary invites you to be part of a culture of passionate service. You can change your world. Be inspired. Join the movement. We're in Pathways. This is our, our identified uh, nine areas of spiritual growth. Of course, there's other ways to grow, and I recognize that. But I think part of our uh, responsibility and challenges your church pastors and staff is that we would present to you the easiest, most uh, approachable way that we can for you to grow spiritually. And uh, so we've done our best to do that. Um, It's still being developed. And on the back table back there, you'll find all kinds of resources. There's one book in particular, and I meant to bring a copy up here. It looks kind of like a magazine. um, And that is the missional, um, in particular, the missional uh, resource that we'd like you to um, to use and to, to grow in this area. So that's back there on the table. Um, you can help yourself. There's an iPad, just whatever you want to do, but grow. That's my thing, right? We're getting here in January. We're encouraging you to grow, seek spiritual growth, own your spiritual growth, right? Um, and we're doing our best to just equip you, uh, to do that. So that's all back there on that back table. I'm going to say this quickly. We'll do it at the end. Uh, but right after the service today in this room, uh, we're going to have a, uh, meeting for parents and our Sanctus students, our, our teenage students, and then our parents. And it's just going to be like, what are we doing this year? What are we doing in the spring? Pretty much all the way up through June, uh, our mission trip to Panitas. Um, so we'll talk about all of that. And we want all of our parents with teenagers to stay in here today, okay? So right after the service, you're going to stay, kind of gather in the middle. Everybody else is going to go and sponsor Uganda kids or pick up something back there or go outside, sign up for some other ministry. Sanctus kids uh, and your parents are going to stay here, okay? Um, so we'll do that when we're done. All right, Acts chapter 8. I, I mentioned this man last week, and I'll say his name again. Francis Schaefer, um, again, one of my just heroes, I think, of the Christian faith, one of the great thinkers of the 20th century Christianity. He wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Disaster um, in the mid-70s. So now this is, when I thought about it, I was like, oh, like 30 years ago. This is now 40-plus years ago that he wrote this book. Um, called The Great Evangelical Disaster. And he said this, and some of you will be like, yes, this is true. Some of you will recoil against what I'm about to say. He said, Christianity is no longer the ethos of our society. 40 years ago, Christianity is no longer the ethos. And we'll talk about that. Like, I I don't know if I agree because I don't know what ethos is. All right. So we'll talk about that in just a second. Christianity is no longer the ethos of our society, what does that mean? Well, I need to explain it briefly, and it'll, it'll give you a context to understand what he's talking about. There's this concept um, since about 350 AD, about 350 years after Christ died, there's this concept of culture in the West that we came to know as Christendom. Christ, you just write the word Christ in dumb, like kingdom almost, but Christendom, okay? Now, in the old world, in Europe in particular, the European model was that government and the church became the same thing. There was no distinction between the government and church. In particular, at a certain point in history, the church was the government. By de facto, they were the government. And I'm talking over an entire continent that then was spreading across the world. The church was the ruling government. That was called Christendom, okay? Okay. Now, we don't do that here. 
It's one of the reasons we, we left Europe and, and kind of came this direction all those years ago was to start a place, a country, a, an idea that that, that kind of Christendom, that kind of government uh, didn't exist. We couldn't shed ourselves of, the, of the, some of the core principles, though. We left the big ideas, the political ideas, and some of the religious ideas we left, but we didn't lose all of it, right? So in America... And, and really a Western model now is that there is this agreed upon set of morals that stems from a common belief in God, and that's how we're going to live with each other. So that's why you have the Constitution, and in our Constitution, it'll openly reference God. It'll openly reference a creator, because at the time, there was agreed upon system of beliefs that stem from this core belief in God, and we're like, we're all going to kind of uh, acquiesce to that. If we don't really put our faith in it, we're going to morally assent to it and say, that's how we're going to live. There are, there are morals and ethics that are going to govern how we live based on, we're going to agree that there's a God who has kind of set this system in place for us. Now, this is going to sound a little crazy, but here's what I'm going to say. So that sounds great, right? And we want to pull out our make America great hats again and wear them when we say this kind of stuff. All right. Now here's the problem with Western Christendom, okay, where you have a culture that says we're going to agree on a particular set of ethics and morals, but really hearts aren't changed. So here's the problem with that. It allows for things like slavery and racism to flourish because our hearts aren't changed, right? We're just agreeing that as a culture, we're going to live a particular way because we're going to say at the core, if there's a God somewhere, doesn't mean we've acqui- we've, we believed in Jesus. doesn't mean that he's come in and saved our lives. It means that we agree there's a God and there are morals and we're going to live that particular way. But because our hearts are still dirty and tainted by sin, you have those ugly things of our culture and our history that were part of our history, right? And that we still feel the effects of and we're still dealing with many of those things today. So we, we kind of Christianize culture. It's called baptizing culture, Right? We baptized culture. We came into entire people groups and we're like, if you'll just agree with us that we're all going to live in in peace with one another, we're going to agree that there's certain things you should do and certain things you shouldn't do. We'll call ourselves a Christian culture, but in reality, we're probably not changed. So we sort of Christianized our society, but we didn't regenerate people along the way. So when he says, when, when Francis Schaeffer said 40 years ago, Christianity is no longer the ethos of our society, if you wanted to argue with him in 1975, you cannot argue with him now. We can, no one could, ra- could rationally sit here and say that Christianity forms the, the basis of our culture now. We just couldn't say it anymore. So he's absolutely correct in that way. And that's what he means when he talks about the ethos. We've lost that Christian ethos in our culture. So some of us are just deeply disturbed by this and... We could make all kinds of arguments about like what American culture was really like for the last 300 years. We could talk about that if you want to and and where this came from and when it started and how we landed here and da-da-da-da-da. But here's what I would just encourage all of us with this morning is that that's probably not so disturbing when we recognize, when we remember that the early church understood her identity as as a, uh, a resident alien, the early church looked at themselves and they were like, we're not citizens here. This, this is literally not what we're for. This is not what we're about. We'll be good citizens, but we're not citizens of this place. We are resident 
aliens. There was this tension in the early church between the church and the culture around her. The church understood that for them to impact their society, they had to present them with an alternative community that had an alternative story. Now, for Christian Americans, this is very hard because we have married the church's story to culture's story. Some of you can remember the moral majority, the resurgence of this in the 80s, the moral majority. Well, we did it again. We hooked our wagons to culture as, as, a, as a religion or as a people group, as Christians. We said, as so goes the right fundamentalist wing of our culture, so goes the church. And we have to understand that the, the culture story is not our story. If it was, the church would have died with Rome. When the Roman Empire fell in the Dark Ages, the church would have disappeared. Thank God that it didn't. Because there's always the remnant that understands this is not home. This is not what we're building for. This is not what we're building toward. And we have to understand that the church is an alternative community. And we have an alternative story. So it's not such a bummer when we understand that that is the church's identity. We are called out to be a people unto the Lord. Amen? We're called out to be a people who gather together, a holy priesthood for him. So we need to keep those things in mind. We're in this post-Christian world. Maybe you've heard that that phrase before. We live in a post-Christian world, a post-Christian America. And it really has been just kind of completely stripped away, hasn't it? Like it's just been completely gone. Now, we're in the South we're in Houston. At, at a, there was a time, again, 30 or 40 years ago, Houston was called the, the buckle of the Bible belt. And if you've ever lived outside of north of the Mason-Dixon line, <laughs> okay, if you've ever lived outside in the west, if you've ever lived north of, of the Red River, God forgive, it, forgive you for going to Oklahoma, but you found your way back. Say, so if you ever lived outside the Bible belt, this is not, this is not a crazy concept for you. It still has like residue here in our culture, you know, here in the South um, and metro areas in the South, like DFW and Houston and Austin. Um, you're seeing it creep in. If you look at, at simple things like voting results and um, diversity of culture within our major metropolitan areas, you'll see this shift already happening, even in the South, right? So we're seeing this start to happen. Um, so what are we supposed to do with our culture now? This is the big question for us as a church, like as an organization, but also for you as an individual. Because you cannot assume anymore that your neighbor starts with the same set of beliefs that you do. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you could, but you can't make that assumption anymore. So, so what are we supposed to do? As a church, as an organization, are we just supposed to continue to run Awanas and Sunday school and Wednesday uh, night fellowship meals and just assume that people are going to knock down our doors to get in? Again, 50 years ago, you could put a poster out. We're going to have Wednesday night fellowship meals and people are going to show up because it was church because that's what people did. That is not the case anymore, right? So what are we going to do both as an organization, as individuals, in this post-Christian uh, society that we live in now. We probably have to just readopt that, that early church mentality, understanding of who we are and what our purpose is. Man, when we, we, we probably really don't get this, um, but when we really look at the church and we understand how much of our culture has been absorbed into our churches, 
and that our churches and our gospel has been compromised by our culture. When we really, really understand that, we would, we would begin to go more toward, I think, I hope, if our hearts are in the right place, we would gravitate toward this alternative community model of living, this alternative community idea, which is emphasizing the church is a community that's shaped by a different story than our dominant culture is shaped by. That we don't approach pain and suffering the same way that our culture approaches it. We don't accept, we don't approach good things and things to be celebrated the same way. We don't approach goals and dreams. Our aspirations are different because we're living by a different narrative than what our our world is living by, you know? We would really begin to adopt those things and, and build our lives around those things. We're a community. Now, here's what else that means. That means that we have to embody a a different kind of social order. James talks about this. This goes way back, guys. This is like core New Testament Christianity. In the book of James, what does he do? He, he berates rich people for treating poor people differently in the church. We have to have a different way of treating people in here. Not falsely and not plastic. We have to be real that there is no caste system within our church, Right? There's no black, this is Galatians. There's no black, white, male, female, Gentile, Hellenistic, Jewish, whatever. We're Christians. And we have to treat people like that. And we have to love people like that, which is what we talked about last week. There's to be a radical difference in the way that we love each other. So if we really understood how badly the church has been tainted, how badly you and I have been tainted by this world that we live in, how we've absorbed the values of our culture and our gospel has become watered down because of that. We would radically change the way that we live and the way that we're approaching life, which we'll talk about as we go through today. There's a guy that lived in the, uh, the 20th century, born early in the 20th century, died in 96, I believe. Um, his name was Leslie Newbigen, and uh, he was a Dutch-English uh, pastor, bishop in the church of scotland we'll talk about him more he said this he talked about you know how can the church make an impact on the world that we live in on the modern world how can the church come into this world and make a a a vast difference like the early church did right and he said here's how this happens it means that individual believers as you as we each fulfill whatever god's calling is on our life and that's going to be radically different for each of us So as individual believers leave this place and we seek the calling that God has placed on us, we understand that that is where the missionary encounter takes place. I'm not picking on anyone, but I do want to ask this question. How many of you have ever been on a mission trip of any kind? Put your hand up. Now just keep your hands up for just a second. I want you to put your hands down. If your mission trip was outside the state of Texas, keep your hand up outside the state of Texas. So you're saying, I've been on a mission trip and I've been outside the state of Texas. If it was outside of America, keep your hand up. All right, so now we see hands, 30 hands, 25 hands. You can put your hands down of people who have been on a mission trip outside the confines of the United States. Now, if I asked you this question and we raised our hands and I said, how many of you were on mission yesterday where you live? Some of you would go, no, I washed my car and I did some yard work and And you've missed the point, haven't you? Do not fool yourself into thinking that because when you were 15, you went to Panitas, or you were 40 and you went to Uganda, that somehow you've become missional. You went on a mission trip. 
You become missional where you understand that the way that the church makes a difference in a post-Christian world is that everybody that you run across is part of your missionary experience. We have to adopt this mentality again. We have to see ourselves as going into the mission field every time we leave our homes. Every time. We are in a post-Christian culture. And we can bemoan that and be sad about it and cry about it all day. Or we can take the gospel with us on our lips and with our feet every time we walk out of the house. Because isn't the gospel still the hope of the world? and not a political party, and not who's in the White House, and not who sits on the Supreme Court? Am I wrong about that? Or is the gospel the hope of mankind? We have to understand that, listen, we've got to readopt this idea that each of us has this opportunity and a responsibility as we go out to understand that our lives, everything we do, is a mission experience, right? So we're sent out to go into this mission field, which is our neighborhoods, our places of work, whatever. That's where God's sending us. And we also have to understand that God, it's not our mission, it's God's mission. Um, I'm not going to Schlumberger or or, uh, my school district or whatever, wherever it is that I'm working or teaching on my mission. I'm going on a mission that God started before the foundation of the world. It's, It's God's mission. And we really do have to kind of, again, wrap our minds or rewrap our minds back around that. I would, I would predate it to the garden, but we could easily say that at least since Genesis chapter 3, God's been coming after lost people, right? From the earliest times of human history, the earliest time of human history, what has been God's mission? To redeem those who walk away, to call back those who have gone away from him in sin, that has been God's mission from the beginning. You see it in Abraham. Some of us are like, no, that's New Testament. Go to Abraham. What did God say to Abraham? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you children, blah, da, 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 so that you can be a light to all the nations. It was God's intent to call to himself a group of people so that they would be a light to the people around them who don't know God. If you go to the law, you're like, well, certainly the law cuts out people who are outside of God's family. The law was the exact opposite. It had whole sections that were like, and if a foreigner comes in, and if somebody from outside wants to come in, here's how you make that happen for them. And God's like, I will judge your mercy, not on how you are treating one another, but how you're treating the foreigner who comes in and wants to be part of you. God has been about seeking the laws from the beginning. Jesus said this, Prior to the cross, prior to the Last Supper, as my Father sent me, so am I sending you. He comes, he dies, he comes back from the dead. And what's, what does he say? Go, go, teach, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is called, and I'm not going to kill this, I wish we could. I think it would just bore the rest of you to tears. If you're not already asleep, it'd put everybody else to sleep. Missio Dei, it's the mission of God. And I didn't make that up, and I don't want to sound smart. That's what it's called. The Missio Dei, the mission of God. What is that? To redeem a people for himself. To do what? And our refuge kids, you should be able to answer this. Why are we here? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What is God's purpose on this planet? What is he doing to redeem a people to himself? To glorify him and to enjoy him forever. That is God's purpose. It's the story of the Bible. This is the story of the Bible. It's not about you. 
It is the story of God redeeming a people to himself. So here's what happens. God births the church. If we're going to say in Acts chapter 2, he births the church, and he sends the church on his mission. It's almost like God's like, I'm already doing this. You're the vehicle through which I'm going to continue to accomplish this. I'm doing it. It's my work. I'm going to use you to make this happen, to see that this happens. So God's in, really God's inviting us to be on his mission, to be a part of his story. If you guys would in Acts chapter 8, I want to look at the early church, right? And so Acts is the whole, is the story of the early church, the first several years um, as the church gets established in the world. Like it didn't exist, and I want you to understand that. Theologically, practically speaking, the church did not exist the end of Matthew 28, the church exists in Acts chapter 2, okay? So God's created the church. He's uh, now empowering the church to go out and to do his mission. So what do we learn about our mission and about how we fit into what God's doing in his mission from Acts chapter 8 or the first church, the early church? So let's look at that. Uh, Verses 1 through 3. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. So what we just read in chapter 7 was the first martyr, the first person that we have recorded who dies for his faith. Stephen, a deacon in the church, um, is ministering and preaching the gospel, and they get very angry, and they stone him. And Saul, who becomes Paul, is holding their jackets while they're throwing stones at him, and he is in hearty agreement with what they've just done. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. The first thing I want to point out about the church's mission that we want to slough over, I think, as Western Christians is this. The church is on mission as it is scattered and in persecution and in a world that can violently disagree with them. This has been the story of the church from the beginning. It will always be the story of the church. It should always be the story of the church. There is nothing that we are selling a pagan culture that fits with how they see the world. Nothing. And especially really religious pagan people will get very angry about the gospel. The church is on mission with God as it goes into a world that violently disagrees with them and carries God's message into that world. And I would kind of say this, it's not despite the violent opposition to the gospel, it's in light of the, of the violent opposition to the gospel. Those are not the same thing. Sometimes we use language like, I'm going to go there even though they don't. I'm going to go there, beca- what if we just say, I'm going to go there because they don't. Right? Even though they're going to, because they're going to oppress me, I'm going to go there. Because they don't have the light of of God in them, I'm going to go there. Because it could be a violent end, I'm going to go there. Because they need the gospel. That seems to be the mindset that the early church had. This is where God's forcing us into this place, which you have to read Acts to kind of see that. But God is literally pushing them out of Jerusalem. And it's God's work that's pushing them into these places of oppression and violence. So the church is on mission as it goes into that world and maintains its witness. Look in verse 4. Therefore, uh, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. The second thing, the missional church goes and preaches the word. Now that may sound crazy, but here's what I think happens in our world when we go. We hide. 
right? We're told not to pray somewhere. We're told not to take our scripture somewhere. We're told not to, you know, share the gospel somewhere. So what do we do? We don't. <laughs> we we kind of do the opposite. We end up hiding in our culture for fear of, a, of, of offending someone or not being, uh, you know, um, uh, accepting of somebody else and tolerant of somebody else. The church is on mission as it goes and preaches the gospel. So how can you do that where you are? Because I do think there's a trick to this, right? I, we've talked about this before. I do think that there's this trick to sharing, to going with the gospel on your lips. I'm, I'm not going to pick on Paul, but Paul, Paul uh, Hicks is over here. And if men in particular, if you want to know what that looks like, I would totally encourage you to go talk to him and find out what it looks like to take the gospel with you into your life every day. So maybe it's like this. Um, are you in law? Does anybody practice law? Don't raise your hands. We want you to be safe this morning. I'm kidding. Are you in law? Here's what I want to encourage you to do as, as somebody in the law. You could use a, uh, the law as a springboard to talk about how the law can't make anybody good. And I mean like the, the laws of our culture, they can't make anybody good. They can't change your heart. They can speak into behavior, but even then you can break them and you're still violently opposed to the law, right? Same thing is true with the spiritual law, with scripture. The law can't make anybody good. Morality must come from a higher source. True morality has to come from somewhere outside of us. And we have to be free from keeping the law. That's the real kicker, isn't it? We don't want our lives to be just defined by how we keep the law. We want to be free from having to keep the law to get good or to get what God has for us. Are you in engineering? The first thing I would encourage in engineers, don't raise your hand because even if I asked you to, you wouldn't because you're all introverts, right? All right. So if you're in engineering, the first thing I want to encourage you to do is talk to somebody. All right. That's, that's the first one. Maybe you can send him a picture or a Prezi presentation or a spreadsheet of how you see Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. Now, here's what I'd encourage you to do as a mathematician, somebody who deals in that world of math and, and order and all that. Talk about the order of the universe and how mathematics points us to the mind of God. I don't even like math, but I would totally bend to that point. There is this beautiful symmetry and clockwork-like way the universe runs that points us to the mind of God. And I think as an engineer, you can use that to help talk about the gospel. You can talk about how a developer created the world, not just with order, but with beauty. Can engineers talk about beauty? Not just order, but beauty. God created this world not just to run, but so that we could enjoy it, which tells us something about God, doesn't it? And that God has done the same thing in us, and he wants to remake us in his image, in his beautiful image. Are you in teaching? Talk about how learning is possible because we live in a knowable world. And I know that sounds silly, but I want you to understand that. If we come from nothing and we're aimed toward nothing and everything is just chaotic randomness, why should we be able to know anything at all? But we live in a world where we can know things. And because we live in a world where we can know things, that means that there must be someone, something that put this in order in such a way that we can interact with the universe around us and know it. Talk about how when you teach, you unlock parts of the brain so that we learn something and we see God just a little bit more clearly. Education doesn't push us away from God. It should draw us toward God. That God is knowable. That's a huge one, right? We can know God. 
that God wants our eyes to be opened up to who he is and what he's taught us about himself in the world, in our hearts and in Jesus. The missional church goes and preaches the gospel. Do y'all understand? I, I don't have time to go through everybody's job. But do you understand where you're spending 40 to 60 hours of your week, every week there's an opportunity for you somehow to go into the world on God's mission with his gospel on your lips. The missional church goes with the gospel. Look in verse 9. There was a man named Simon. This is such an interesting story. We're going to approach it from a different perspective. There was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be somebody great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, both men and and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. The missional church has a public witness that wows the culture. The missional church leaves this place not with our heads hung low, worried about tomorrow, beat up by life, complaining and griping about everything that's awful in life. We go out of here with a witness that says God is good and he's worthy of our praise and he's changed my life and he has secured my future. We have a witness that wows people because your neighbors will not face death, destruction, and loss like that. Your neighbors won't handle blessings or material things like that. You and I have an opportunity to walk out of here just in the way that we live our daily lives, but also think supernaturally empowered by God to have a witness that wows people. And the missional church goes out and does that. So we gather here on Sundays and we're going to worship and pray and we're going to encourage you. But then we go. We get out of here. Your Christian walk, your, your missional Christian walk isn't measured by what happens to you on Sunday morning. Some of you, your entire walk with Jesus is like whether Sunday was good or bad. (laughs) And it's this everyday experience of taking him into the culture that we live in. We go. We go where? We go to Jenny Lane or we go to Panitas. We go to Uganda. Big Heart Orphanage down in Mexico. We go to George Ranch High School, Lamar High School. We go to Redding or Navarro. We go to Schlumberger, Weatherford, Memorial Hermann. We go to Summer Lakes, Greatwood, Town Center, Pecan Grove, Longmeadow Farms. Are you going with a witness that wows your culture? Do people look at your Christianity and go, man, that looks awful. That looks terrible. They may not agree with it, but is your Christianity just boring and lifeless and dull? Are you a man biologically, but not a man spiritually? And they look at you and you're like, if that's what Christian manhood's like, I don't want anything to do with that. Or do you live a Christian manhood that's like, wow, what a strong, kind, compassionate, humble man. Do you guys get this? Wherever you go, you go with a witness that wows people. Your neighbors, if you're on the PTA, if you're in coaching, your coworker, your boss, whatever it is, you go in the power and the representative authority of Jesus Christ. And you go with a mission And a witness that wows people. Verse 14. There's a lot here in verse 14. Just this one verse. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. It's such a simple little verse, and I want to talk about this. 
So these people are receiving the word of God back at the beginning. They're preaching the word of God. The Bible is central to good, strong missional churches. So if you land here, amen, great to have you. If you don't land here, just land somewhere that really stays in the Bible, which is kind of rare and hard to find now. Get into a place that drives you to Scripture. Get into a place that pushes you consistently into Scripture. So we're going to be here, and we're going to gather around the Word of God. We're going to learn what we can learn, and we can't learn it in any other way. That's the other thing I want you to understand. What we talk about here, what comes out of this Word, isn't things we can learn somewhere else. Because here we're going to talk about God's great, beautiful, missional plan for the world. You're not going to talk about that anywhere else. We're going to talk about the mystery of salvation. And we're going to talk about why we live our lives together. That's what we're going to do here. Get somewhere, put yourself somewhere that drives you to Scripture, to the Bible, because good, strong missional churches are driven from the Word. They're driven from the Bible. The next thing from verse 14, the other thing we understand is that the missional church hasn't arrived yet. So it's kind of weird, but the apostles at this time in church history— I think they kind of thought a couple of things. One, I, th- I think they thought, this is amazing. The Holy Spirit has fallen on us. Jews are finally going to get it and follow Christ and get to God. Like, this is it. Man, when they started getting outside of Jerusalem and uh, similar events began to happen around them, it blew their minds. Like, they did not know what to do with that, right? And so they're sending, like, emissaries. Hey, we're hearing something really similar is happening in Samaria. Somebody go check that out and verify this. Make sure it's not crazy time, right? So they send these apostles there to check it out. And very early, uh, Acts chapter 13, I believe, they wrestle with this question, which sounds crazy, but can Gentiles be part of the church if they don't become Jews first? They have a church council to answer that question. They weren't talking about carpet color or toilet paper. They're talking about big stuff. Is it possible for people who aren't born Jews to come into the church without first becoming a Jew? So they're having the, their minds are just being blown. Early, early in the church, they understand we are not who should be here. There's a bunch of people who aren't in here yet. There's a bunch of people that don't look like us, smell like us, talk like us, walk like us, look like us, dress like us, think like us, believe like us that need to be in here. They never reach the point where they're like, we have arrived. We have reached all we're going to reach, Right? Us four, no more. They pushed past that thinking. They, they, they adopted God's mindset, right, into understanding that there are thousands upon millions upon billions of people who are out there who need to be in here. The missional church understands that it's not complete yet, and it's moving towards something else, and it involves diverse people, more diverse people. That's what the church understands. The missional church understands. Next thing, verse 14. The missional church, the really truly missional church, is seeking to break out of being the same. We want to be missional. We want to reach Hispanic, black, Asian, white, purple, orange, yellow, plaid, whatever. Like we don't care. Are you a human being and you don't know Jesus? I got something for you. And the missional church understands that we have to break out of this natural human tendency to want together with people who look like us, talk like us, smell like us, dress like us, all that kind of stuff. We have to break out of that. We don't want to be the same. We want to be as diverse as our community is and diverse as the kingdom of God is. The people that the Lord has put around us, that's who we want to reach. 
So our churches should seek to be the most integrated places on Sunday mornings. But in, unfortunately, at least in the South, they still are very segregated, are they not? And isn't that a travesty in the kingdom of God? Whether it's an all-Hispanic church or an all-black church, an all-white church, all-whatever, that we have cut ourselves off from our brothers and sisters in the faith because of skin color or culture. The church should seek to be the most integrated place in the world. You're like, wow, that's really heavy. Let me give it to you heavier, okay? They go to Samaria, and you're like, what's the big deal? Jews didn't like Gentiles. Jews didn't like Romans. Jews hated Samaritans. These were the bottom of the dregs of society, next to lepers. They hated them. They had perverted their their culture. They had perverted their religion. They had set up an alternative place. They didn't have to come to the temple to worship. They set up an alternative temple to go worship God. They hated these people. And yet, this is the first place that the gospel goes outside of Jerusalem. Doesn't God have a great sense of humor? That he sends, the first place he sends his spirit outside of Jerusalem is to these people in Samaria. God's like, you're going to be with them too. So we got to get over that quick and early. Don't we? Isn't that part of God's message to us? Get over it. I got a bunch of people I want to reach. And you're going to be the vehicle that does it. Or quite frankly, get out of the way. And I'm going to find somebody who will. Which should scare us. They went with the gospel on their lips, with the Bible in their hands, understanding in their heart that they hadn't arrived, and they broke out of being the same and looking the same all the time. Look in verse uh, 18. Jump down. Now, when Simon saw, so this magician dude, he saw that the spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offers them money. He's like, wow, man, I was a magician and I was fooling people. You guys are amazing. I want some of that. So he's like, I'll pay you to show me how to do those tricks. And he says, give me this authority as well so that everyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours. Pray that the Lord, pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Now, this is what's interesting. Simon's believed that he's probably been baptized, and Peter's driving toward soul change, isn't he? He's driving toward heart change. Don't be Christianized. Be really Christian. Don't just give assent to a set of morals and standards of living. Be changed in your heart. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answers and says, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said would come upon me. The missional church understands that our motives and our goals are fundamentally separate from the world. Now, this is where you'll see culture really creeping into our gospels. First of all, we want to be accepted. We've already talked about we have to be different. Second thing I think that really has crept in here Money, acclaim, recognition, position, and power. They can't motivate us, and they can't be the end result result of us following Jesus. Money, acclaim, recognition, position, and power. They don't motivate us to follow Christ, and they can't be the end result, like I'm following Christ to get. Now, God can choose to give those things to you, or he can withhold those things to you, but they don't change the why of his mission. 
we've switched the mission around to God protect me from everything bad and give me everything I want to from I'm going to go reach lost people with the gospel. They're not antithetical to one another, but they're not the same thing either. We fundamentally must see ourselves as being conformed to the image of Christ, willing to sacrifice ourselves at all costs, if necessary, for the gospel to go with us. Now, at the end of this, they brought joy to the city. Verse uh, 8, he says, So there was much rejoicing in the city. People are getting saved, like things are happening, and it says the city is rejoicing. So here's my question for each of us, and I really mean this, man. What community outside of the church is rejoicing because of the sanctuary fellowship? And what community outside of this place is rejoicing because you're there? Or they roll their eyes and go, here's the Christian. Oh my gosh. Or tell me to put my trash can up one more time. I'm going to slap that Christian, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? How, how, what kind of salt and light are we being in the culture around us? Is the city rejoicing because we're here, because lives are being changed, because culture is being changed? Later in Acts, you have this guy who's making idols out of silver. He gets changed, and the city's happy, and then they get mad because their economy starts to fall apart, because people are getting saved so radically in their culture. Is the city happy? Is your community glad and rejoicing because of us? We ought to be the blessing of God to people, the sweet taste of Jesus to the world that we rub shoulders with. Do you all understand that? We're so angry as Christians sometimes. We're mad about everything. or afraid. Maybe it's really fear. We're so afraid of everything, and we come across as just fearful, angry people. We ought to be the sweet taste of the grace of God to people, man. And when we're done, when we leave, when you walk out of George Ranch, my kids went to George Ranch, when you walk out of Lamar, when you walk out of your junior high, there ought to be a stench odor of joy that you leave behind, man. When you walk out of your neighborhood, we lived in Greatwood. When you walk out of wherever you're, there should be something behind. It's like, man, that was good. They were good. Something was different about them. There was joy there. Do we understand that we live in a mission field? This is what it all comes back to. The early church kind of got this. God forced them, which is scary. I don't have time to get into it, but it is a little frightening that God said, go reach the world. And they said, no, we're going to stay here. And God said, okay, persecution, I'm going to push you out. Maybe we're experiencing that as a church right now in America. So comfortable, so happy, arguing about drums on stage or violins or choir robes. What are we doing? And God's like, okay, I got a mission. I'm going to push you out into it. Our lives are the mission field. God has a mission that might or might not include your health, and your long life, and your prosperity, and your circumstantial, ha- circumstantial happiness. But it always includes your taking God to the lost. Always. I talked with our refuge kids this week, and I'm going to use this analogy in a different way. We're missing the 90% because we're focusing on the 10%. So we want God to bless me, change my circumstances, make me healthy, give me happy kids, give me this, whatever. And God's like, awesome, you know, I'd like to give you that stuff, but really I have this mission to like 7 billion people. And you're obsessed about your house size or how many cars you have or when you're going to retire or your kids. You're obsessed. God's like, I'm obsessed 
with reaching people who don't know me who are headed to hell. Now, that's another doctrine we can talk about if we need to, but it's a real place. It's eternal separation from God. God's like, I have a mission. I have a mission. You're the vehicle through which I'm going to accomplish that mission. Get out and do it. Everywhere we go, we are on his mission. Don't miss the 90% of God's mission for the 10% practical application of what it looks like in your life. Don't get so preoccupied with what you have or don't have that you're missing. My neighbor's going to hell. My coworker's going to hell. Have you ever said those words? They're, they're on the way to hell. It's a wide way and it's an easy path and everyone born is headed that direction. And God has a mission. He wants to save as many as he can. And he's using us to do it. How does that happen, man? It's how you handle conflict. How you live every day. The choices that you make. How you try to build relationships with people. How you treat the troublemaker, the mean person in your life. How you participate in community. Everywhere we go. Very practically, what does this look like? I'm going to say something and some of you are like, Pastor, you've kicked me three times in the solar plexus. I'm going to do it again. Here's the last one. I'm going to really hit you. How do we take the mission to the world? Get out of the church ghetto. We have built a subculture, not even a counterculture anymore. We've built a subculture inside the church where we hide. We have got to get out of the church ghetto, guys. Can I have just one amen? We have got to get out of these walls. We have got to get out of these people that we agree with. We're patting each other on the back so much that we don't have an opportunity to hand out the gospel to people. We've got to get out of these walls. We have to get out of the comfort of other believers in our lives and what seems so encouraging to us. Be built up. Be in community. Be in life group. Go with the gospel. Next thing, you have to learn the language of your culture. Some of us, again, we're so worried and offended, worried about being tainted, and we're offended at what our culture has and is, that we just stay far away from it. You can adopt that mindset if you want to. You will be irrelevant the minute you step outside of your house. Our culture is driven by certain things and a certain kind of language. We're not going to get into that, but there's a, a certain language our culture speaks, and we have to learn it. We have to figure out what's driving our culture, what's motivating them. How do they speak to one another? How do they talk about their dreams, fears, and aspirations and goals in life? Do I have anything to speak into that with with the gospel? If I come with my church language and try to slap it onto this non-Christian, post-Christian, post-modern culture, it's like Mandarin Chinese. It doesn't make sense to them. I've got to figure out what's happening in my culture, learn to speak that, engage with it, Read someone that's not a Christian. Find a blog from a, a great secular thinker. Read it. Understand where they're coming from. Artists, writings, there's all kinds of things. Get into it, not just to bash it. Guys, man, listen, we need to recognize there's beauty in the world around us, right? Common grace. There's beauty in the world around us, and sometimes I need to recognize that beauty and point people to the beauty of the Creator through it. Paul did that on Mars Hill in Acts. You need to tell your story in a real language. This is part of being genuine. One of the biggest knocks people who are not in the church have against Christians is that A, we're all hypocrites, and B, we're plastic and fake. We have got to learn how to be real and genuine with people. Now, that doesn't mean you're dragging all your junk in front of everybody all the time. 
It does mean that as you talk about the struggles of life, you're honest about things, and you're genuine about things, and you're saying, I'm not there yet, but God's going to take me somewhere, and I'm walking with him, and we're going to figure it out together. You want to walk with me? Tell your story in real language. Here's another one. We've talked about this before. Listen. Have you ever, have you ever taken out your lost neighbor to coffee? Maybe you don't even like them. This would be a big step for some of us, right? Maybe you're just going to call them and say, hey, man, I, we've lived here for years. And I don't even know much. Of, can we just go grab coffee together? And listen to them. People like to talk about themselves. Right? We like to hear our names, and we like to talk about ourselves. It's not hard. Just ask a couple of questions and let them go. Then you're done, you're listened, and you're like, hey, that's amazing story. In your head, you're going, crazy people, right? But you're thinking, oh, uh, crazy, that's a great story. Can I pray for you about anything? I have yet to find anyone who's been openly offended by that question once I've listened to their story. They may say, no, that's okay. Most often, people will go, yeah. That would be really an honor if you would pray. Listen to people, pray for people, ask if you've heard their story. Here's another thing we talked about last week. Do something really meaningful in your community that cares for the downtrodden. Who in our community is just beat up, knocked down, can't get up, and you could step in and do something truly meaningful? The God, the mission of God, the Missio Dei, is to change the lives of people for redemption, to save their souls. But man, I'm just going to kind of say, we're going to use any and every means to see that happen. What does that look like for you as an individual to go, man, these people are hurting. I'm going to go with them. So tangible ways of showing God's love. The gospel is the love of God to us through Jesus Christ. How can I show people that? Well, we did as a church more than words. We did Carter's Kids Christmas back at at, uh, Christmas time. Three weeks, this might be in the worship guide, but we're having uh, Carter's kids come out here on a Sunday morning and tell us all how we can be more involved. I think that's the beginning of February. Um, So we're going to do that. We have Uganda sponsorship, which you'll hear more about today. There are ways for you to share practically the love of God. Be genuine. We talked about that. Be genuine when you talk to people, interact with people with the gospel. Invite them into your world with Jesus. Invite them into your world with Jesus. That can be really simple stuff, really simple ways you can get there, okay? But just kind of invite them. Are you reading a book like Everybody Always? We talked about that. And we, that's on the back table back there. It's a great book. And there are things that really anybody could try to, you know, employ into their lives. And maybe that's a simple way to do it. Man, I'm reading this book and it's really changing me. Uh, Mindy and I really impacted by the Red Sea rules and we've given some of that to you. And that's another easy way. Just this changed my life, man. I, I think it might help you too. Invite them into your walk with Christ somehow or another. Little things, little tiny things. And then here's a big one. You have to model a lifestyle that is radically different than what they're living and what they're counting on. And that's what you always need to remember. As we look at the world around us and we're like, that's a crazy choice. That's something you should never do. Why are they doing that? Because they're looking for something that makes sense of their lives. Shouldn't that tell us how desperate they are for something good? for something to be meaningful in their lives, that they'll try that, that they would give their lives to that. And as much as we recoil from it, we should also with pity and mercy look at them and go, wow, dude, there's an alternative. You don't have to go down that path. There's another way. So we have to model a lifestyle. Now, my personal opinion is 
as we go further away from our culture, as Christian morals, ethics, and worldview diverge further and further from our culture, we are perfectly set up to live a lifestyle that doesn't look like our lost friends. 40 years ago, we could all play a game and have good morals and ethics, but really not be changed. Not anymore. That's all gone. There's no pressure like that anymore. People are just going to be lost. That's okay. Lost people should be lost people, right? Don't expect them to be anything less than that. But you shouldn't. You and I should set a higher bar, not as being plastic or fake, but like I'm going to really pursue holiness in my life so that when they look at me, they see a stark difference between my gospel and the gospel they're chasing after. Because it is competing gospels, and you need to understand that too. Something's preaching to them, believe in me, give yourself to me, and I will bring you happiness, fulfillment, and satisfaction. Are we not saying that with Jesus? Does your life look like that? There's a cost involved here, and I'm not going to say there's not. There's a cost, real self-denial, crucifying ourselves, following his will. That may mean we lose relationships, possibly. Certainly our pride is going to take some major hits. Our reputation might even take some hits, which sounds crazy, but very possible. All kinds of things that can keep us from following the mission of God. So we would need to just pray, God, break my heart. Break in on my heart and change my heart and my conscience. And break me of my selfishness. And my, really, guys, listen, don't we need to say this, God? Break me of my unwillingness to see the world and love the world like you do. Aren't we just calloused and hardened against a world that is so crazy and weird and broken and gross? And we've become hardened to it. And we need to pray, God, break my heart. When I drive down I-10 or 59 or however I'm going, not crying because the traffic's so hard, but crying because there's 7 million people in this metro area and our heart breaks for them as they go to and fro work and chase the dream and it's empty, empty, empty all the time. God, break my heart for that. I'll go back quickly. Leslie Newbigin, the guy I talked about at the beginning, He's a Scottish, a bishop in the Church of Scotland. He ships off to a missionary field in India in 1947. He returns to England in 1974, almost 30 years later, he's been on the mission field. And he comes back, had kids, raised their children, just everything, lived life there. And he comes back in the mid-70s, and he was shocked at how far away from Christianity and toward what he said was Pluralism. We don't have time to get into that. How far from Christianity, how far toward pluralism England had shifted during those 30 years. So he spends the rest of his life, the next 20 plus years, trying to help the church reevaluate how to live the gospel in a post-Christian society. So he says this. He said, man, the, the Western world is seeking after false gods. And he's like, it's the same false gods that people have been chasing after for millennia, right? Power, sex, money, all the things that we've been chasing. He says the Western world's kind of giving themselves to that, seeking salvation through that. He said, reaching in England in 1974 is much harder than anything I ever saw in India. He said, in England, there is a cold contempt for the gospel, which is harder to face than opposition. 
England is a, he says this, England is a pagan society and the development of a truly missionary encounter with this very tough form of paganism is the greatest intellectual, practical task facing the church. Now you could just take England and the United States and flip them around. He says, if the gospel is to challenge the public life of our, of our society, if Christians are to occupy the high ground, which they vacated to modernity in the times of modernism, he says, it's not going to be by forming a Christian political party or aggressive propaganda. Once again, it has to be said that there is no going back to Christendom. The aim is not to go back to the culture of 1945. It will only be, how are we going to impact our culture? He says it will only be by movements that begin with a local congregation in which the reality of the new creation is present, known, and experienced, and from which men and women will go into every sector of public life and claim it for Christ. To unmask the illusions which have remained hidden and to expose all areas of public life to the illumination of the gospel. But that will only happen when the local congregation renounces an introverted concern for their own life and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members as a sign, an instrument, and a foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. We have got to adopt that again. We have lost it and we must reclaim it. We are God's tool and instrument to take the sweetness of the gospel to lost people to a culture that's rejecting it out right now and is becoming violent toward it. So the question now lands on us, are you gospel-centered? Would, any, would you say that your life is gospel-centered? What does that mean? It means you understand that you've been saved and you're being saved. Jimmy talked about that when we were worshiping. I was saved at some point, but the gospel is saving me today. I'm being transformed by the gospel every day. And gospel-centered means that I am living out a spirit-empowered Christian life in every situation, in every relationship. I talked to a young woman this week, and she was like, man, when I'm at home spending time with, you know, on my own, I'm, I'm baking or I'm watching Netflix, you know, or just whatever. I don't understand how I do that to the glory of God. This is what modern Christianity has stripped away from us. We don't understand how to bake to God's glory. We don't understand how to go be an engineer to God's glory. We don't understand how to parent to God's glory, how to be a spouse for God. We've lost it. We have to recapture this idea. Everywhere I go is an opportunity for a mission experience, that I am on a mission field every time, every time I leave my house. Jimmy talked about it earlier while we were worshiping and men, all of us have prayers. And I want to encourage you on this wall over here, there's cards, write down a prayer request, man. You tie it on a string and you hang it up there. We're going to start praying over these things next week. So your prayers for 2019, we all have prayers. We all have needs and desires. I want to flip it around. We're two weeks past the new year. Maybe I can flip it around a little bit. Have you prayed a prayer that sounds like this? God, what do you want in 2019? Usually our prayer requests are what, what I want, what I need, really legitimate stuff. But if you just pray to prayer that's like, God, what do you want in 2019? I don't know the answer for that. I can't, I can't answer that question for me. I can't answer it for you. I don't know the mysteries of that. 
for what God has for us. But here's what I can guarantee you, okay? I can guarantee you that Jesus was born for the lost. He cried for the lost. He lived for the lost. He died for the lost. And he came back for the lost. I can guarantee you that Jesus loves those people who don't know him and he wants them to know him. I can guarantee you that Jesus sent us to continue his mission to the lost. Are you praying and crying and living and dying to yourself? Are you going out on Jesus's mission to the lost? Are you praying for your one with desperation and tears? Let's join God on his mission. You bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm gonna do something. We're gonna spend a little bit of time right here. Man, I think some of us need to be cut to the quick this morning. We need to be just pressed down in our hearts with the heaviness of God's got this mission and then I've not been participating. I'm going to school, I'm going to work, I'm parenting, I'm living with my neighbors, but I'm not on God's mission. And that is weighing me down now. We should feel the pressure of that. Not as guilt to be beaten up, but as motivation to join him. Some of us have this one, and we've talked about it for a couple of years, this one person, God saved them. Would God please save them? But have you just passionately cried out to the Lord? Have you got on your hands and feet and you're like, no, they're lost, man. Joe, you don't understand. They're like really lost. Beyond the gospel? Brother and sister, are they beyond the gospel? Are they really beyond hope? Are they beyond the saving power and grace of Jesus Christ? Have you got on your face and cried? Have you desperately sought them? Have you asked God, put me on your mission for my one? I want to be on mission with you. So we're going to take some time and I'm going to open it up. There's some altars here at the front on both sides. The prayer wall is here. If you want to come up and spend some time praying for your one, praying about being part of God's mission, maybe somebody's like, I think I need to go in the mission field. Like I think God's calling me into...